1: This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Thank you for joining us for another edition of This is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And this is a first for the program because never have we had someone to do two parts. And we really need two parts to tell the story of my guests this morning. Malcolm Blight is my guest. We spoke to Blighty about Malcolm Blight, the player, last week. We just need another show to talk about your great career.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, the coach. Um, playing was interesting. I loved it, obviously, and coaching was a was always a challenge.
1: Was that the thing that attracted you? Because we spoke at the end of last week's program, Bloody. I asked you whether you would be a player or a coach if you could only do one. You said playing. Yes. But the challenge of coaching seemed to be something that really appealed to you.
0: Yeah, I did. And um, I, I mentioned... Uh, it, During my playing days, Ron Barassi introduced me to, I guess, video replays in those days. Uh, We call it something else now, but it's basically a review of the game. And with the review of the game, you you learn about players' idiosyncrasies, their strengths, their weaknesses, the opposition. And so that actually tickled my fancy as a player. um, And I actually ended up following Ron Barassi as, as playing coach of North Melbourne, Uh, appointed at 30 years of age which when you look back now is quite silly really (laughs) but uh, then it was fine. Did you have a little notebook? Did you make notes
1: along the way of things that attracted you from what Barass was saying and things that you thought you might be
0: able to use as you became a coach? Absolutely. Um, I remember talking to John Dugdale and the hierarchy at North Melbourne. Brass was sort of known that he was probably going to go to Melbourne, you know, his club, original club, back to coach them. So I think North started talking to people, and they t- talked to me that during that year, and I was always hopeful that Brass would stay. Now, if he didn't, so I started talking to them, and, and they sought me out. There were a lot of people not coaching at that time, including Ron ha- uh, Tom Hafey. So the fact that they ended up choosing me uh, was pretty interesting, I thought, but I really did have some ideas on football that, was slightly different to what brass not not to detract from brass I thought there were some things that I could add that I think that my personality would be better doing rather than Ron so and as the discussions went on I think they saw something different in me
1: how difficult, Bloody, is that to impart when someone as charismatic as Barassi, a larger-than-life figure, has indoctrinated the players about a certain way that he wants things done, not only football-wise, but generally? How difficult is it to change the thinking of a group of people, and how long does it take? Yeah, well, I,
0: I suppose, you know, you sort of had from October onwards, and as a club, we'd gone one, two, three, five. So, first, second, third, fifth. We were dropping off as a club. I think everyone knew that. I mean, you know, a lot of the good players had retired, a lot of getting older. Um, so it, w- it was trying to have a new look, and I think that uh, the board at the time thought a new look would be OK. Uh, I did have some new ideas. Now, one of the things I've got to say, in the only defence I can say, is that we lost six games by 14 points or less, and we had horrific injuries to six or seven of the champs. You know, it was one of those years that... Probably had to happen because it happens in every football club. But but being in charge, um, I was still in charge of it. And so after round 16, you know, I, I sat down with Ron Joseph at the time and just, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep playing? I did. Um, do you want to step aside and just be non-playing coach? No, I don't want to do that. Or do you just, you know, do you want to keep going to the end of the year? And I said, well, look, those were the three options. Um, he, he didn't force me to do any one of them. But I thought at the time I just felt that we were going to struggle to make the eight. Well, we weren't going to make the eight. We'd won six games I think what I was, out of sixteen. So um, I knew that Barry Cable was in Perth, and you know I had a pretty good association with Barry over the journey, and I knew he was not coaching in Perth. He'd won a premiership over there. So I actually made the Ron actually let me make the phone call to Barry Cable to say, "Case, would would you be interested in coaching the last six games at North?" Because whatever happened, it hasn't worked for me. Um, So that was what I did. So with this experience, you're looking forward to being a coach. You've
1: had it in the back of your mind for some time. Did it sour you at all? And I know it was a difficult experience because of the other role that you had. Did it sour you or did it make you even more determined that you were going to
0: make a go of it at some stage down the track? Yeah, no. the, The realisation was that when Barry came and I handed over to him through a press conference, I said to him at the press conference, do you mind if I just go? The boys are out, just started training. He said, no, no bloody, I want you to go and get changed and I want you to train. The worst moment in my football life, bar none. I had to go in the change rooms by myself. I was the coach, I'm now not the coach. Changed. We did a two lap warm up in those days and a bit of stretching on the fence. The blokes had already done that. I ran round those two laps of Arden Street Oval with that many cameras and even blokes with radios just watched trudging, you know, it was just my whole life flashed before me, you know, it was um you know, young family, you know, all the things that go through with that and it was just the worst moment in my football life. Was there
1: one of the boys who said something that broke the ice and eased the moment a bit?
0: Not really. So it was that distressing for um, yeah, you? Yeah, not really. If it did, I didn't probably hear it. Someone might have said something, but I don't know. I was, I was, I was, in, I was in fog land, to be perfectly honest.
1: Did that feeling ever lift from you, or did uh, it stay? Well,
0: as I was doing those laps, and every camera and TV stations and radio and press bloke and everybody is, is virtually in my face doing those two laps. I just decided then and there. There are a few things I probably didn't do that I should have done. You know, Because cause I was playing and there were people off the ground and issues during the week, I don't think I did... I wasn't me. I, I swore on those two laps, if ever I got the chance to coach again, I would be me and I would do it my way. No one will interfere with me ever again. And we'll talk about the next step in the
1: coaching journey. I just want to explore this a little bit more. This is an environment where we see you. Mm. at the football club running laps but you get in your car and then you go home Yeah. and that feeling doesn't lift from you no was that a real tough
0: thing to deal with away from football at yeah. that time yeah it was yeah i mean you know i don't know how many pages there were in the papers you know there's probably 15 or 20 pages of my career and what happened and you know the, the disaster of that and it happened again it happens to a lot you know because that's the the life you lead but I I just just knew from that day onwards, if I want to coach again, I I, I know I want to do it, it it, it would be done 100% my way or no way. And I think I compromised as the first timer with blokes you played with and people you knew at the football club. So the compromisation was never going to happen again in my life. So you come back to Woodville. Yep. And... There was a $50,000 fee involved, wasn't there? There was some more money involved, yeah. A benefactor jumped out the sky. A guy from America um, saw the plight of me going back to Woodville and then charging, North Melbourne charging me. Um, so he jumped out the sky and, uh, and paid it. And as
1: it turns out, I think... Um, uh Didn't uh, Woodville keep the money at
0: one stage? Yeah, it was all. Yeah, that was. It it, it was. It was quite convoluted, really.
1: North withdrew. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: Eventually, did yeah. Yeah. So, even in those days,
1: dollars were still meaning a fair bit. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So you take your first steps effectively, where you were playing coach again. Yes. But then, what about the experience of just being the coach, the first time that you were just the coach and you didn't have the burden of. Playing as well. Did yeah. it feel as though a weight had been lifted off your shoulders because you could actually concentrate on the job that you were supposed to be doing?
0: Yeah, look, it did. Because I, I played for three years at Woodville and the last year, as I mentioned, I kicked 126 goals and you know did, did a lot of good stuff. And Captain South Australia, um, mm. as I had done in Captain Victoria as a player. But when I decided to stop, um, ironically, uh, we played the finals the next two years. So we've gone from bottom... Four wins, six wins. Sorry, four wins, four wins, six wins, With you and know, going up steadily. The following year, we, we played in the finals, and we beat uh, Port Adelaide and Norwood, the two great clubs in South Australia, to make the premiership final. We just got knocked off in the premiership final. So my first sojourn as a non-playing coach, and the following year, of course, we made the finals again. So there were two finals appearances from Woodville that had only had one in their whole history beforehand. So no doubt when things didn't go your way at North and...
1: Um, it was a difficult experience, as we said, because you were wearing two caps. We keep on coming back to that. You would have questioned what you were doing wrong. What were you doing right at Woodville? And when you sat down and you thought, I've improved this place, I've improved this football team with similar personnel, what was it about what you were doing was making
0: that team improve? Well, when I first went back, I, was, I, I had a bit of Barassi in me. You know, smash people. And hard and loud. And I still did it throughout my coaching career but got better at doing it probably picking the mark so you actually get better at doing it but I I think I've mentioned it before the technique of the game really intrigued me why couldn't you mark it why couldn't you kick it why couldn't you read the game why couldn't you use your body so those are the questions every time I started talking to players as I got better at it non-playing because you had more time was that hopefully you started to introduce things that players could improve marginally, just marginally. So the sentences weren't about building someone. It was actually about helping them.
1: It was going to be a natural progression, I guess, that you would go back to the big time, to the VFL, as it still was. How did you manage to find your way to Geelong, to a club that you really
0: had no association with? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I moved back to Melbourne. I, I stopped at Woodville after those two years of playing in finals, and I thought, you know, five years was enough there. I got offered a role as a, as a general manager in a Brambles company, which was a um, company called SPD Transport. So I actually went back to Melbourne because of work, because of your next future. So I'd actually put the coaching bit on hold. Channel 7, Gary Fenton was in charge of 7 then, and, and thought that I'd be okay at maybe special comments with Channel 7. So. I did that through the year, and apparently I said some smart things or some clever things. <coughs> and come the end of the year, uh, I was, I, I could, we had an office in Maribyrnong in a yard there, and I was reading the, the Sun, and John Devine had just finished up at Geelong. I just finished reading the story, and the phone rang, and it was Ken Gannon from the Geelong Football Club. He said, well, "We'd love to have a chat to you. You know, we've watched your career as a player and what you've done in Adelaide and what you said on TV and." we are obviously looking for a coach. So the great Ron Hovey was present at the time and King Gannon came and uh, the conversation started. Was it good
1: money? I'm not asking you to quote dollars, but was it good money to coach in those days or was it a pittance compared to what you might be able to earn
0: as a top player? Um, Somehow or other, I discovered what maybe the previous coach had got. So I think I tripled it, (laughs) just for fun. Because don't forget, the job I had paid much more than what the football coaching role was so I mean my priority was still work so to actually make it reasonable I said well you know what about this so and and I still worked and coached for the next uh, two years two years
1: I'll talk to you about another paycheck a little bit later in the program you probably thought that was coming (laughs) Um, you get to a grand final in your first year at Geelong was that the greatest grand final ever
0: played in your eyes no, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I didn't look back until 10 years later, Peter. I honestly didn't look at, you know, because once, you, once you've lost it, perhaps there should have been something I'd done as a coach, but what could you do with change then? Who's going to remember in six months' time, you know, every centimetre of that game? So whether I was right or wrong with that, I don't know. But I, I never watched it back till 10 years later. It, I knew it was tough. I, it was probably... Were we ever going to get there? Probably not. Mm. You you know, they were so slick early, Hawthorne. Their kicking was just enormous. You know, we gave away some free kicks, all that sort of stuff, but we kept on coming and, yeah, it was a pretty tough game. I I probably haven't seen a tougher game than that. You've answered this question a million
1: times, but we couldn't do something without asking the question. Did you tell Mark Yates what to do or did Mark Yates tell you
0: what he was going to do? No, I've. you know, Mark came clean on that uh, a few years ago and said that, no, I'd, I'd planned it mainly because Brereton had bowled Yader over at uh, a game early in the year and um, Couch, Paul Couch had won the brown medal. I, I, I just figured that knowing Brereton, the way he played, and he was rolling through everybody. I mean, he's a great player, but he he, he he made his physical presence and I just thought he'd come. Couch, he always played at the back of the Ruckman, so I figured that just an insurance policy. And, yeah, Yader ran into him. No elbows, no punches, no nothing, uh, but... Um, you know, Damien got up and kicked three goals, which were pretty important in a game like that.
1: That was the first of three grand finals you mm. made at Geelong. Was ninety-two the one that got away? Yeah, I
0: reckon it was. We didn't have a great record against Eagles. You know, they, they were a terrific side. Obviously, um, we, in hindsight, now there's a lot of people rated the, the grand finals after that. We fell well short of them personnel-wise, but I thought that we had good enough year outside of the Eagles. If we could just have that one good day. But we just didn't have enough players play well enough. I mean, it's as simple as that. And the Eagles uh, dutifully won.
1: And then 94 was a pretty wide margin. And I think your quote afterwards was, well, somebody has to come second.
0: <coughs> yeah. Um, you know, that final series was probably the most exciting I've been involved with, bar one, one week. We won three games by less than a goal to get there. And a couple after the siren. That famous... Billy Brownless goal after yeah. the siren, and then Ablett's late goal, yeah. virtually after the siren, over Mickey Martin's no, head. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So, to actually get there was was an enormous feat, an enormous feat. And on grand final day, um, do you think it took its toll? Getting there took its toll on grand final day. Yeah, I, yeah. The Eagles got away from us, and then we came back. And then I remember Gary Hocking just getting cleaned up by Wersbold, Um which he was pretty good at, really it's almost like the, the whole place got sucked out you know the nemesis Eagles back mm. the belief just dropped out of the group like you could never believe and in the last quarter I think Eagles kicked 8 goals 8 or something you know what I mean they just smashed us in the last quarter so our blokes had stopped playing and I, I'd always figured you know that happens occasionally but I reckon to stop playing in a grand final means I, I, I had to go Mm. Know, I just felt, you know, you, you just hang on as long as you can. You might get beat, but you hang on. I, I don't reckon as a group, the, the the team didn't hang on, and that was my responsibility. So after I called myself the pizza coach, you know, got beat by a small margin, a medium <laughs> margin, and a big margin, um, and so that's when I decided to go.
1: One last question about your time at Geelong: the perception from outside was that you had one rule for Gary Ablett and one rule for everybody else.
0: Um, Were not, we wrong? Uh, not quite. But, you know, I, I think the art of coaching, you know, is, is you try and keep it as a team. But the, you, you bend. I used to call it bending, you know, in the grey spots. But I also had some other grey spots for other players as well. You know, Gary was the, the most famous player and probably the best player. So you bended probably a little bit more to some of his, his wishes, which was which was all to do with Sunday training and church majority. That was 99% of it of which I got the senior players in and they agreed to it. So that's where I bent. Is he the best player you've coached? Most explosive. Hmm. I categorise each of them because there's so many good ones. But not the best? Um, Certainly up there, you know, probably was, but just his power and his kicking and his attack on the footy. But, you know, comparing him to others you've coached, I mean... You know, Gary Hocking was a fantastic player. So was Paul Couch, um, Darren Jarman, Andrew McLeod. I mean, there's a a lot of good ones, but they're also different. Buddha
1: said you changed everything about Geelong when you went there. Um, We'll talk about the next step. We're here in the City of Churches talking to Malcolm Blight, and we'll talk about the return to the City of Churches when we come back on the other side of the break. Great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donaghen? We continue to explore the life of Malcolm Blight as a coach on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You talked about the fact that your time had come at Geelong Blighty. So then Adelaide beckoned again
0: a couple of years later. How did that all happen? Yeah, I... To be honest, Peter, I thought I was done. You know, I, I thought, you know, you'd, you'd visited the grand final three times and just fell short and um, really enjoyed my time at Geelong. <coughs> Found it very similar to the Adelaide mentality. You know, the big brothers down the road or across yes. the border. Very similar type people, so I quite enjoyed our time there. Um, so I was doing what I did and went back to work and, um, you know, did some special comments again and a bit of writing and obviously kept around the football world and... um Towards the end of '96, um, Robert Shaw had finished up at the Crows, and I got a phone call from John Reed, a great mate of mine from Adelaide days and Woodville days, and and you know probably best mate over thirty five, forty years now. Um, would I be interested in um, some unfinished business? He called it, um, which is a fascinating way to put it. He reminded me of it of just recent times, but. Um, I, I suppose I, I, I thought, hmm, cries, they've won eight games, seven or eight games, and I'm not really going anywhere. But anyhow, as, as we got talking, the juices started to get going again. So it took to, you know, Bob Hammond, great South Australian identity, and Bill Sanders, who was a Woodville player and then a Woodville administrator with me, and he was the CEO at the club. So all these bits of people that you trusted. Um, came together. You
1: actually wanted to coach South Australia. Yeah. Uh, and you couldn't do it because of <coughs> other commitments. Yeah, circumstances, Did yeah. you find that this was the opportunity of almost being the next best thing?
0: Yes, it did, yeah. It reminded me of, uh, you know, of coaching the state team because, you know, obviously Port Adelaide were about to come in. but uh, So the Crows were, you know, I, I, I felt I was part of the state team. yes, yeah, quite right. And it didn't take long for the football team to change
1: around and for success to come... And we talked about what it means to people when North Melbourne won, but in this footy mad city, oof,
0: that must have been something. Yeah, uh, it's almost hard to describe. You can't. Uh, someone said there were two hundred and fifty thousand people to the parade after the game. You know, uh, on the Tuesday after, um, and in fact they're following me, of course. But just if you saw the footage of you know the main street here, Highley Street, Rundle Street, and all that sort of stuff, and the mall and people were, were just berserk. I mean, it was just... It was like the weight of the world had been lifted off South Australia. That's how... You know I mean? That's how important it was. Little brother had beaten up uh, big, uh, big brother. brother yeah. <clears throat> and it, it made... Uh, and I don't mean this... You know, what my observation... What, it made South Australia relevant. It made Adelaide relevant in the big picture of the sporting world in Australia. Um, and I think that's probably true. And if... If you hear anyone now, they'll always refer back to, even with the Crows losing last year, well, hang on, we've still won two more premierships than this team or we've won one more premiership than this team. So the fact there's two flags flying in Adelaide at the Adelaide Football Club is pretty important to everybody.
1: What do you think in your mind's eye when you picture what Darren Jarman did
0: in the last quarter in 97? His <laughs> so smile comes. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and that's why... You know, if people following football, you know, you get your stars and you get your good players. And that's why the, the congestion now we should take out of it. And let, the, let everybody have a smile on their face about their champs and the players they really love. You know, don't, don't make them tackling machines. That's another game. So, you know, the Andrew McLeod's and Darren Jarman's of the world are just priceless. I mean, they, they were just beautiful to watch. Here's another name that might bring a
1: smile to your face, Shane Ellen. <laughs> Tell us about uh, the thought process
0: behind what turned out to be a genius move. Well, uh, Tony Modra was playing full foot of course, and uh, sadly did his his knee in the preliminary final against the Bulldogs. And when we came from behind and had that great win, and I, 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 was, there were, I had rules, you know, as, as, as a team, there were certain rules you had to abide by it, uh, to keep getting a game or stay at the footy club. You know, some of them were tough, some of them were were easy. But the rule was, you know, I wanted someone at Centre Ford, and that was Matthew Robin, he played a role. They talk about role players now. I had role players, you know, and you had to do this. And the full forward, I wanted a leading type full forward to actually lead up the ground a bit. So the other blokes, you know. Early in the year, I was at South Adelaide, down at Hick and and Oval, way down south, and it's always windy there, always windy. Shane Allen was playing for South Adelaide so I'd go every second week and go and watch one of our players that were playing in the SNFL <coughs> all the match committee did so, and I saw Shane it was a really windy day and the first quarter he let out twice and took two really nice marks on the lead You know, a bit like Modra you know, in a way mm. and it stuck so this is this is round three or four so he kicked one goal one then the second quarter the ball never went down that end at all it was a 90 mile an hour win so it was just useless but I, And I didn't want to watch the third quarter, so I drove home and I thought, ah, oh, he's got nice hands. And I didn't know him that well as a player. So when it, all, when it all happened and Tony was out, I didn't want to change anybody else. I just wanted that type of player. And so Shane became that player. Mm.
1: Speaking of Tony Modra,
0: was he bigger than the Beatles <laughs> at his peak in this city? I, I, look, I think he must have... I, I was away, of course. I was actually in Melbourne at the time. But, yeah, I mean... Mods, you know, for all his things, and you know, didn't end well at the end between us. But um, oh, he was—I think he was—he was the shining light of the of the Adelaide and Adelaide versus Victoria mentality, which has always been there.
1: Just a couple of things from Adelaide: the guard of honor.
0: Who was that against? Uh, the Crows, actually. Okay, that was when I was coaching Geelong. Oh right, Yeah. So well, we just hadn't won a game. It Was getting late in the season, so I thought we'd try to use it like a final. You know, you line up like a final. Yeah. We 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 didn't get whacked. We got beat by less. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> uh, and leaving the coach's box early. Uh,
0: yeah. What, what was behind that? Um, well, we, we were losing a game to Richmond at home and towards the end and... Uh, Did you just want to make it known how pissed off you were? Um, there were two things. One, I was fuming. That's point one. Point two was, I think, and I... I I can't swear on a stack of Bibles this, but I think I did misread the time on the on the monitor. You know, with time to go, um, I thought there was. I, I, look, I have to rewind my brain, and that's a bit hard to do. I, I, I think I did rewrite. You know, I'm not trying to make an excuse here, but I, I thought, well, by the time I get down the siren, I'll go. Well, I, I was a few, I was a, quite a few minutes out, <laughs> and Johnny Reeve was standing right, you know, walking right behind me. But um, yeah. I I, I wish I could tell you the absolute 100% truth, but I don't, I'm don't. i not sure exactly why I did it. Uh, would I do it again? Probably not.
1: And just one last thing about your time at Adelaide. David Pittman. Yep. If you had the chance again, would you use exactly the same words in that circumstance?
0: Absolutely. Um, what I did do um, is I said it in an interview uh, straight after the game with Neil Kelly, the great South Australian legend here, that it was a first quarter effort, you know, it was very ordinary, pathetic. In the press conference after, you know, when there's 30 or 40 people in the room, I actually, I omitted, I, I didn't mean this, is this is God's honour, I did not mean to say about his career. I omitted the first quarter. So... That became the story, and I hopefully I squared off with David. He's, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with him since, but it wasn't about his career. It was about that first quarter when he started leaning, not jumping, and I hate ruckmen that don't jump.
1: We'll talk about the next phase in the coaching career when we come back on the other side of the break, and that was at St Kilda, and that was a much-talked-about stint as well for all sorts of reasons. Malcolm Blight is with me on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. More with Blighty after the break. Yeah! Got You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan Great to have you with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers funeral celebrating lives, the great man, the legend. Malcolm Blight is my special guest. Blighty, how did it come to an end in Adelaide?
0: Um yeah, look Peter I I would go home with the, the DVD. C D and um, I would not want to know why we lost or one. So whatever happened that night, I would um, <laughs> I'd get my little drinkies and little puffies and I'd analyse the game myself. You know, no one else. You know, now the six or seven, eight of them do it. But I'd actually, <clears throat> I'd actually want to know why. I'd put a note on every minute of the game. Were you obsessive about this? Yeah, I was, yeah. I figured that was my role. I had to know why we we won or why we lost, and what I could do about it. Now, sometimes I'd write five, six, seven, eight pages of notes, and might only use one line the Monday because I had a belief: winning starts Monday. So that was my mantra. So I I, I used to go fairly hard. People, most people think I am pretty casual, and I am. I, you know, I mean, you enjoy your life and whatever else is on. But you know, when I was coaching, I, it was up. It was my duty to find out why. And so I, I I burnt the candle uh, a little bit longer than probably most. Did that have an effect on your personal life? Uh, not really, no, because uh, even in the early days, the kids were asleep or Patsy was asleep. And, you know, it was one one day. Um, and if you won, you probably took a bit less time. But if you lost, I, I couldn't put it away.
1: I think you famously once said as a player, you weren't fun to be around when you lost. No. Were you no. like that as a coach?
0: Um, yeah, probably was a bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. Uh, you know, at some stage or other, I hated playing poorly. I, you know, I, 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 would sometimes I wouldn't even eat. Sometimes I'd just go for a run. You know, and, and everyone thought I was a bit bit casual, but I, deep down, you know, I, I wanted to win. That, that's what you're there for, So, particularly as a coach. So I think I'd just burn out a bit quicker than most.
1: When Adelaide's stint came to an end, your stint at Adelaide, did you think that was it?
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I thought, you know, I was like the, the dog chasing the car particularly with the two flags. Even after the first one, I thought, Geez, I don't know if I can actually do this again. You know, you've, you've, you've sort of caught the car. What do you do next? Yeah. And then after the second one, I felt a bit the same. And I think that's probably just the letdown and the, the whole pressure tension thing just coming down. Um, but, I, you know, obviously you kept going. And the third time, we had a lot of injuries in that third year. And I just felt that the team was... I, I didn't know where to go else with it. You know, you, you wake up one morning and think... See, I reckon I've got the best out of these guys. I wonder if it needs a new pair of eyes. And, and you know, a bit tired, so, you, you know, you, you make the call.
1: So you start looking towards the next phase of your life. Is it only when someone puts a blank check in front of you that changes that?
0: Is that story right? Yeah, probably uh, not quite, but virtually. Virtually, I, I think you're right. They sent a delegation up there. Yeah, they, they did. They yeah, with a lot of players and, and and the others. And yeah, look, I mean, it was. I suppose the thing was that it was you know the record as a coach was pretty handy. Um, you could say that, yeah. Um, and and it's nice to be wanted, Peter. You know, no matter who you are, whoever's listening out there today, it is nice to actually feel wanted. So, and I thought, well, you know, I've had twelve months off. Maybe why not? And it became the why not factor as much as anything. And I think I can help. But they'd won two games. When I went to Geelong, they'd won nine or ten. Adelaide at eight or nine. Two is not very many. It was a very ordinary football club. Again, we talk perceptions
1: because we're on the outside looking in. And Mm -hmm. perceptions are so often wrong. And this is why it's great to be able to get your viewpoint on it. The perception, of course, was that
0: you weren't invested when you went to St Kilda. You dispute that, don't you? Uh, of course. I mean, I, I've, I've never known anybody that um, when they first play didn't want to be the best player they could or win the game. And as a coach, you think you want to go out there and not try and do it? I mean, it's just... The, there's a lot of stories uh, came out of St Kilda, but I think the final answer was last year when Rod Butters, who was president at the time, said he was substance whatever... And it was an irrational decision. The only thing I can say, Peter, and I'll honestly look in the. I never, ever not wanted to be there. Never, ever not wanted to help the players. Did it my way. Sometimes people don't agree with everything I've done. But what. The only summary I can make of that time is that I'd spent then 15 years as a coach, learning a craft, pretty successful. In fact, and some would say, very successful. Yet that board knew more about football than I did in fifteen weeks than I'd learnt for the previous fifteen years. Do you get the stupidity of that? Mm. Fifteen weeks they knew more than me. That whole board. When did you realise it was untenable? Oh, not until the minute it happened. Not until that Thursday they said you finished. I said okay, somebody. It just happened like that. Pretty much. Yeah. Did uh, the players? Did you have the players when you were? At oh, St Kilda, I, I, did you feel as though you had them um, where you wanted them to well, be? Well, no, not, not by long stretch because um, as Fraser Gehrig said uh, a, a few years later that the list, half of them shouldn't have been there. I mean, you don't win two games in this competition with a great list, Pete. I, I don't care if you're a bad coach. You know, you just don't do that. Um, the list was very poor and needed another three or four years, which it took with early, more early draft picks and a champ called Nick Rewell that I played in his first game. So it, uh, it, it left a taste in your mouth for the reasons I was me. And I keep saying that to people. If they didn't want... Why did they come and get me if they didn't know what I was? Mm. And as I said, I'll repeat for the last time what I knew in 15 years they knew more than me in 15 weeks do you have a relationship with Rod Butters no do you want one not really no I mean it's not one of those things I avoid him we don't live in the same town haven't lived forever Um, and there's lots of other people at the club too that no if you see them I'll probably say hello but it's no different to me I mean I've finished up a lot of people I've been finished up mate I reckon my lines go up on my mouth rather than down
1: just uh, one more thing about that. It was a million dollars, uh, or everyone seems to
0: think that it was. Is yeah, that right? Everyone seems to think that. Would you care to confirm or deny that, Blighty? Uh It's probably. Uh, it was. It, it was. It was a, it was a handsome sum, uh, but as it's turned out, what does it matter? You, mm. pa- you pay a heap of tax anyhow. All people forget that when you come through all that. And what do you get out of it? Well, you probably get a. Well, you get a, an emotion sometimes that you don't like. So. Money's not everything.
1: I actually went to the media conference the day at Morabin and I hadn't been to a media conference for a few years. Uh, I think there was one stage when they were trying to get you in Adelaide. I think they called it Operation Messiah. Well, there was something Messiah-like about this media conference when it happened the day that you got the flick. It was bigger than Ben-Hur.
0: Yeah, i um... <laughs> yeah, it's great memories, isn't it? Terrific. I think that was, uh, of all the things I've done, I think that was 23 or 24 pages in the paper next day. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I, I, what, what do you do? I mean, what do you do about it? You can't do anything about it. The innuendo just annoyed me. It's not fact. I live with myself. You know what, Peter? This is my 51st year in football. I've been employed all the way through. All those, A lot of those other people that made those decisions. Where are they now? Very true. Uh,
1: At the end of the coaching career, you thought it was the end at Adelaide. Was this definitely the end? This was full stop, no going back?
0: Yeah, and that three clubs approached me over the next three years to do it again. Um, What stopped you from saying yes? Because uh,
1: obviously they would have been flushing the checkbook around again.
0: Yeah, they were. Um, I I think the reason they thought, and this is due respect to the people, um, they thought that perhaps you can prove a point to the mob that's just given you the flick I don't reckon you coach for that reason you know you have to coach with passion with all those things that you do and I just think it probably it was time you know I, I you know the last experience wasn't a great experience but but I enjoyed coaching some of the players you know I mean I, I still enjoy doing that and hopefully with the technique side of things but I guess you get to a stage where you think ah uh, Do do I really want to go through this 12 months? You know it's going to be hard. You know you're going to have to put a heap of time into it again. Do you really want to do it? So I actually probably stepped back from it and I thought, no, I'll have another year off. I'll have two years off this time. And by the time the people came, other clubs came to me, it was probably three years off. And I think, ah, no, getting a bit old now. I probably don't need to do it when we come back we'll wrap things up our
1: final thoughts maybe some thoughts on the game we touched on that last week about the way the game is heading at the moment but uh, we can tell just by listening to you that you still love the game Mm. and we'll find out some more when we come back to wrap it up with Malcolm Blight on the other side of the break our final segment on this is your sporting life thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives coming up next You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donnegan. Our final segment of two fascinating editions of uh, This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives with Malcolm Blight. Uh, I mentioned a couple of names to you. Blighty asked about Gary Ablett, asked about David Pittman, asked about Shane Ellen, What do you think when I say the name Austin (laughs) McCrabb?
0: Yeah, I was a Yeah, we've we've just done a little thing in in Adelaide about him and some of those moments. And look, it was one of those days we were playing Hawthorne out at Waverley and, uh, you know, windy Waverley. And I used to defend one side, just kill a quarter, you know, the old kill a quarter bit. Yeah. So everyone kicked it back and Hawthorne would try it, we kick it back. So at the 23 minute mark of this first quarter, they've kicked one goal and I think we we, we kicked a point or two. So. working beautifully. Austin's taken a really nice market sent centre-half back and he's kicked to the grandstand side, the attacking side for Hawthorne. Well, sure enough, they ended up with the ball. Bang, bang, bang. I think they kicked six or seven goals in the next seven minutes, you know, so that I was so frustrated and annoyed. So I've walked out in the ground and all the blokes are con- congregating and I sent Austin over towards the umpires. You go and stand with the umpires. You're not one of us. You've broken the team rule today. So that became quite famous, of course. <laughs> and, and we lost the game handsomely in the end of the Hawks. And, um, yeah, Aussie, uh, I ostracised him and put him away in the pasture and, uh, yeah, became folklore after that.
1: Well, you might have put Austin McCrabb into folklore. Another bloke you put into folklore was Billy
0: Brownless. He's made a living out of you. For how long is it now? <laughs> it's far too long, probably 30, nearly 30 years. <laughs> um, yeah, he tells stories, Bill, and, and some are true. But some he's made up. I mean, some of the stories I've heard from people back, and This is what Billy said. Um, yeah. Anyhow, I mean, I, I love Billy. I, he was a good. He was a bit better player than what people gave him credit for. I thought he was in pretty important for us. But he was good to have around a football club. But he is a storyteller of note. So the stories about um, what was it? Sitting in the dark and holding hands. And no, I did all that. Yeah, I did all that. That's true. But he, uh, you know, the bringing towels and you know blankets and all that sort of stuff. A lot of it's true. But he mixes up the stories.
1: Just finally, we've talked about all your great achievements as a player and coach, but to be recognised as a legend of the game is all about a lifetime. It's about a body of work. Was that the pinnacle for you in lots of ways?
0: Um, yeah, uh, it's a strange feeling actually to, um, you know, when I got the phone call to say that, you know, the committee's decided this. I'd actually been through the statue at Adelaide Oval, which was quite another one of those moments. You think of all the things you've done in footy, you think, gee, I hope I get a game. Maybe best and fairest, play state footy, win some medals, win some premierships, coach them. You don't think of statues, do you? Mm-hmm. And then to actually you see the group of people that are legends in the AFL, and you know half of them I know, and half you've read about, you know. Um, to, to actually be put in that little area is uh, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit mind boggling actually. It's not it's not something you go away and think, oh, here we go and we're gonna talk about it forever. It's just something that sits comfortably in the back of your brain and says, Ah, oh, that's pretty good.
1: Over uh Half a century, mm. you've managed to maintain the passion. The passion is still there from that little kid who used to kick the mm. socks around at home yeah. and try and thread the eye of the needle and improve your
0: kicking. That passion's still there, isn't it? I can tell just by looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I still love going to the footy. I still love watching the good players, and I suppose that's why, in the way the game's going now, those good players have been stymied a bit. I, I just want to see the game open up and let us all go to the footy and watch those great players play.
1: And my final question in the great career, did you or did you not have someone in those boxes, those coaches' boxes at Waverley Park at some stage, telling you that the portable camera was coming up to get a shot of you
0: so that you could drop the cigarette underneath the bench?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: It is true. <laughs> yes, it is true. Okay. I, was, yeah, I was certainly the last one caught that way, and uh, I don't do it now, thank goodness. But, yes, that is very true. Uh, I'm not sure whether that is an appropriate note to finish our chat, but that's the way
1: we're going to do it. For those of us who had the pleasure of seeing you play, uh, for those of us who had the pleasure of dealing with you when you were a coach, uh, the AFL says you're a legend and you are, Blighty. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Malcolm Blight joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with another edition of the show same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's Home of Sport.